Okay, guys, we're in Romans chapter 9. Now, for the next uh, three to four weeks, we're going to be studying Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. Now, these three chapters are pretty, I hate to use the word controversial, but yeah, I, I would use that word. Because this is where some Christians begin to differ on their understanding of what's being said here. Okay? So, for instance, there are, there are some who would consider themselves Reformed that, that and, or Calvinistic. Okay, maybe you've heard that term before. Maybe you've heard, neither heard neither one of those terms. But it's a theological frame of reference where uh, they believe very strongly in the election of God. But they would also say that God is done with Israel, that the church is the new Israel. Okay? And uh, so, therefore, they, they would use this passage to support what they're thinking. Now, I believe very strongly that Scripture teaches election, but I also believe it teaches your free will, okay, your choice. And so it teaches both. Now, how's that, how's that reconciled? You're only going to know that in eternity, okay? Did you understand what I'm saying? I mean, there are some things you just don't understand. You have to accept by what? Faith. Like what, George? Virgin birth to Jesus Christ. How do you have you figured that one out yet? How that's possible? No, but that's something that we accept by what? Faith. Okay. So this is this is what we're going to see here is I, my approach to scripture is is the plain meaning. Take the text. If you want to write that down, this is how your approach should be when you're studying the Bible. Is what does the what does the plain meaning of the text say? Because it can't mean anything more than what the author wrote it to mean. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? So when Paul wrote this, he didn't just all of a sudden have some far off, distant thought for it that he doesn't have, but it's it's a secret revealed later on. It's the plain meaning of the text. That's all you need to know. The central focus of all of the Bible, are you ready for this, is not America. It's who? Israel. So we're going to go through this, and we're going to talk today about Israel and God's choice. God's choice in salvation. Now, let me just explain to you, it, because we've been talking about salvation all the way up from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 8, now we're into chapter 9. How did we get to this discussion? Well, how we got here is because of this. After chapter 8 and some thought, thoughts that Paul was making in chapter 8 about living the life of the Spirit, he all of a sudden diverts his thought for a moment. He goes down a rabbit trail. You ever done that in a conversation? where you're talking about something, and then all of a sudden you just kind of go off somewhere else, and it has nothing to do with what your main conversation is about. Now, the rapid trail that Paul's going to take with these three chapters is concerning how his heart breaks for his own countrymen, for Israel, for their need for salvation, and why is it that they can't see that Jesus is the Messiah. Do you understand? He gives a theological explanation concerning that 
for us to understand why things are the way they are. Because maybe you're looking at the news, okay, because Israel was, Jerusalem was in the news this week, a lot this week, I don't know if you realize that, with, with the protests at the Temple Mount and so forth. And, and you're sitting there saying, why don't they see it? He's going to explain to us why they don't see it in these three chapters. This is what it's going to be about. So let's look together. We're going to look at his grief for Israel, first of all, in verses 1 through 5, chapter 9. He says this, I tell the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and the promises, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Jesus Christ came, who is over all, the, the eternally blessed God. Amen. All right, so let's look at his grief here. And I think, okay, let's, I want us to develop a mindset to understand what he's saying. So here's the mindset, okay? Have you got a loved one who doesn't know Jesus? Have you got a loved one who doesn't know Jesus that you so want to know Jesus because you know that if they came to Jesus, it would help them? And and it's like a continual ache in your heart. Do you know what I'm talking about? Okay. All right, that's the mindset I want you to understand. That's Paul's mindset, except he doesn't have it for a brother or a sister or, or somebody. He's got it for a whole group of people that he comes from. Do you understand? He's got it for a whole group of people. This is the this is this is what Paul's writing out of. Okay? So let's look here. Paul tells his readers. That as the Holy Spirit is his witness, he's telling the truth. He wants to make a very clear point here. He wants to stress to us, what I'm about to say to you is the truth. It's coming from my heart. In fact, look, it's almost like repetitive in what he's trying to say here. It's like, man, Paul, I mean, you don't have to go to this extent to tell us you're telling the truth. Look at what he says. I tell you the truth. I'm not lying. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. Here's the other one. My conscience also bearing witness with me. So three ways he's trying to express to us here. I'm telling you the truth in the Holy Spirit where I'm at. So look. The truth that he expresses is the continual sorrow and grief that he is experiencing. This is the truth. He wants them to understand this continual grief and sorrow that they're going through, that he's going through. Now, why would he go to that that extent? Well, I think, remember I told you I want you to have that mindset? Okay, you got that mindset? Ever tried to express that to somebody? Do they understand? No, you want them to understand, right? Because you're talking about that person. You're getting ready to go, and you want them to understand the grief that you're experiencing. Now, do you understand why he just wrote what he did in verse 1? Because he's wanting us to understand the power of the emotions that's flowing through him. 
the grief and the sorrow, the heavy-heartedness, the pain that he has. Pain for what, George? But he tells us. He wishes that he could be accursed by God instead of Israel. That's pretty, that's love, isn't it? Have you ever felt that way? God, do it, do it to me, don't let the, God save them, I'll go to hell instead of them. That's what he's saying here. Do you understand what I'm saying? God, you, you save them, not, I would go to hell instead of them. That's the pain. I would go through what they're going through instead of them. Do you know what I'm saying? That's what he's talking about here. Do you think he loves them? Can't deny that he loves them. If you understand Paul in his heart, if you read his letters, you would understand that, yeah, he was an apostle to the Gentiles, which aren't you glad for that? But his heart broke for his own people. And he would rather have gone to hell himself than his people would experience that. So here's the thing. Israel is the recipient of the benefits that come from the relationship with God. All right, so here's the point where I'm going to have to stop. You're going to understand, well, George, with all this controversy surrounding these three chapters, what perspective are you coming from here? And I'm just going to launch right into it. Right off the bat here with these verses, I'm going to express to you what the plain meaning is of the text. If you look with me, verse 4, who are Israelites to whom, look at what it says, you can't get any plainer than what it says here, pertain the adoption. What adoption is that, George? Adoption is the children of God. Pertain the glory of the covenants. The glory of the covenant, the glory of the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. Okay, now everything that you hope for, are you listening to me? Everything that you hope for concerning heaven. Have you got that in your mind? You've got salvation. You know you're saved. You know you're going to have heaven. You're going to have all those blessings. Everybody know that here? You got that in your mind, right? All right, well, here's the scoop. Here's the perspective, George, coming from plain meaning of the text. Those all rightfully belong to who? Israel. And through Jesus, you were allowed to share in them. Let that sink in for a moment. Because before Israel, did you have a part in any of that? No. What Paul's going to tell us here in these chapters as we go through it is that through Jesus we were allowed to partake in it. See, it's all about Israel. It's all about Israel. So he's he's expressing that the people that he's grieving for are the people to whom pertain the what? The promises. Who pertain? Who who are the who were God's special chosen people? Now you might be saying, well, you know, well, didn't they mess up, George? Maybe just God just finally decided, I'm done with them. Didn't they mess up? I mean, we got the whole Old Testament. Does the Old Testament show that they messed up? Okay, you you might be right in saying that, but here's the problem. 
you might want to reconsider what you're saying. Because if you think that it's possible for somebody to mess up so much that God finally says, I'm done with them, then what leg do you have to stand on? At what point do you mess up so much that God says, I'm done with you? Did you understand what I'm saying? This is what Romans chapter 9, 10 and 11 is about. God's choice and about salvation and that there's still a future plan for Israel. Did you understand what I'm saying here? And what we're going to see here is Paul's expressing his grief here because they're the recipients of the benefits that come from God. But why aren't they experiencing them yet? He's going to explain that to us, okay? Let's go on. It is from Israel, Paul points out, let's remind ourselves, it's from Israel that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, came. Jesus the Messiah came. That's what Christ means. Do you guys realize that Christ is the Greek word meaning Messiah? It's from Israel who's the benefactor of all of these promises that come to the relationship, but it's also from Israel that the fathers came. Who's the fathers? That, that's the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But it's also from, from Israel that what? Jesus came. So, let's look at verses 6 through 29. Look with me at what he says about God's sovereign choice. But it, it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called that is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac. For the children, not yet being born, nor having any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to the election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. And I have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not for him who wills, nor for him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and on whom he wills, he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the things formed say to him who formed them, Why hast thou made me like this? Does not the potter have the power over the clay, and from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another vessel for dishonor? What if God 
wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he called not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not my beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There they shall be called the sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of the Sabaoth had left us a seed, we would become like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. Let's look at what he's saying here about his sovereign choice. Here's the reality of Israel. Paul expresses the reality that not all of the Israelites are truly Israel. What? He's expressing the reality that not all of the Jews are truly Jews. Oh, so let me help you to wrap your brain around that. What's he talking about here? Well, first of all, he's talking about those who are truly saved. Do you understand? When he's talking about true Israel, those who are truly Jews, he's talking about those who are truly the children of God. And so what he's saying is, is that not all of Israel are truly the children of God. How is that possible, George? Well, let me bring it down to a level that everybody here can understand. And hopefully you will grasp what I'm about to say to you. Because some of you have been stomping around churches for a long time, some of you all of your life. Now, I'm about to say something to you. Hopefully you will resonate with what I'm about to say. Here's what I'm going to say to you. Not everybody who comes to church is saved. Is that true? And it's possible that there have been people who have been coming to church all of their life and they don't know Jesus. Is that not true? Just because they might even be in membership, they might even be in leadership, the possibility exists that they aren't saved. Is that not true? All right, now wrap your brain around what he's saying. Not all Israel is Israel. Because haven't you been in church and had a bunch of people, I'm a Christian, but yet they treat people like garbage and, and they're mean and belligerent and they live like hell and and... Just simply because you claim to be, and even go to be, doesn't mean that you are. This is the point Paul's making here. And he's going to back it up with the statements that he's about to make here, that's saying not all Israel is truly Israel. And he's going to back it up through his discussion here for you to understand. So not everybody who says they're Israel is Israel. They might be Israel genetically. Paul expresses the reality here that not all Israel is truly Israel. So he states that not all of the seed of Abraham are his children. Not all of the seed of Abraham are his children. We know that. What do you mean? How many sons did Abraham have? Two. Who were they? 
Come on now, remember Sunday school. Isaac and Ishmael. Who's the older? Ishmael. Who was the son of promise? Isaac. Now, was Ishmael included in the promises of the son of promises? No. Ishmael was what? Rejected by God. Here's what I want you to understand. When we talk about the seed of Abraham, we're talking about the sons of the promise. I'm going to tell you that not all of his sons were a part of that from the very beginning. He's wanting to make a point here. He's trying to stress to us that not everybody who says they are, are. Not everybody who says they are. So he states that all of, not all of the seed of Abraham are his children. Well, physically they're his children, but we're talking about spiritually and the promises that belong to his spiritual offspring. Do you understand? Let's go on. The children of the flesh are not children of God like the children of the promise. Ishmael is a prime example of the children of the flesh, right? Because who was his mom? Who was Ishmael's mom? Hagar. He's going to talk about Jacob and Esau. Again, example from the history of Israel to show the point. Here's the point. God chose Jacob over Esau before they were born according to his purpose. They weren't even born yet. Rebecca was carrying them in her womb. God said the younger will be served by the older. And he makes the point they hadn't even been born yet to even mess up in life. God made a choice before they were even born. I think if you look at the passage, she's carrying them in her womb and he makes that prophecy. Do you understand? Do you understand? The point, the point is I want you to see God had in his mind. He's showing his sovereign choice here. And remember what he said to, said to Jeremiah, before you were formed in the womb, I called you. I want you to understand God's election. God's a sovereign God. How is that possible? God does not exist in time, folks. He created time. The past is the present to him. The present is the future. Do you understand? It's all the same to him. He always existed. So, hey, take comfort in that, because the God who knows the stuff you're going through is already on the other end of it. Isn't that an awesome thought? The God you have faith in through the stuff you're going through right now is already on the other end of it. He's the same God. Now, here's the thing. Paul anticipates the question that God is unrighteous. So the first thing that comes out of people's mouth is, is well, man, God must be unrighteous. Think about it. Look at verse 14. I mean, this is this is where we're at when we think about this. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? He's anticipating people to say, well, that doesn't, that's not fair. Really? Can you say that? You're not God. He's going to make that point here soon. So Paul uses strong language to express that he rejects that idea. His response to that question is, it says there's certainly not, but here's what it means. No way! Meganoita in the Greek. It means no way! Certainly not. So here's what he says. 
The Lord's compassion and mercy is not dependent on man. You need to put a star by that point. His compassion and mercy is dependent on no man, not even you. Because, we, listen, here's the thing. Do you realize we view everything from the perspective of our human relationships? Did you understand that? And so we try to ascribe to God perspective, motive, and everything else based upon, are you listening to me, based upon how human beings act. God does not act that way. His compassion, His mercy is not dependent upon anyone's actions. Do you understand? That's what he's saying here. It's not dependent on man. So he goes on and he says this. God raised up Pharaoh to display his power and his glory. Really? Yeah. He wants to make the point. He raised up Pharaoh to be a vessel to show his power and his glory. What do you mean his power and his glory? It was because of Pharaoh and his hard-heartedness that he was able to bring upon Egypt, what, ten plagues. And he had a purpose for that. Why? Because if you read in a subsequent history later on, if you go to 1 Samuel, there's a point where the Philistines hear that the ark of God has come among them, and they're like panicking. And one of the things they say, this is the God who did that to Egypt! was for his glory. He raised him up for his purpose. So what does he say here? He anticipates another question here. Paul anticipates the question concerning, why does God still find fault in us? Because that's immediately the first reaction from everybody is, well, why does he hold us accountable then? Because we don't have any choice. Have you noticed that? That's the first thing that happens when we discuss the election issue. Where's our choice? God's the one setting everything in motion. Where's our choice? Isn't that a natural question? Why does he still find fault with us? Because we, I mean, because obviously we won't have very much of choice here. Look at how Paul responds to that. He expresses it this way. He says, you got a problem with your question. Here's how he answers that question. There's a problem with your question. He expresses that man has no right to question the God who created us. That doesn't sound like an answer. Well, I mean, have you ever had this? How many of you remember when you were in your teenage years and you had you went through the Y phase? Do you know what the Y phase is? It's when your mama and daddy told you to do something and you said, Why? And and the response is, yeah, that's right, John, because I told you so, and I don't need to explain why I'm telling you this. And and Paul's response is, who are you and I to question God? Because here's what he says. He gives us an illustration to make his point. It's the point of a potter in the clay. God, like a potter, purposes one vessel for honor and one vessel for dishonor. What's he talking about here? Well, I'm going to explain something to you. Uh, in, in their day, they didn't have toilets running water. 
So what you did was, and this was true even up even into the European cultures, you, you had a pot that was used for water, but you might have another pot that was used for, you, you understand, for, yeah, a chamber pot. Yes, thank you for the proper terminology there, Nancy. Does everybody understand what a chamber pot is, okay? And you don't use one for the other, right? And his whole point is, is that when a potter, the potter has one lump of clay, and from it he can make a pot, a, a, a vessel for honor, or he can make a chamber pot. God's the creator. God's the creator. Nobody questions that. Now here, here's the thing. God can endure the actions of the wicked to show his power and wrath. Isn't that what he's doing right now? Some of you are like, when is this going to end? When is this going to end? God's enduring what's going on to ultimately show his what? Power and authority. When will that take place, folks? Chapter 19 of Revelation, when Jesus Christ comes back. Chapters 4 through 18, when he pours out his wrath on this world in judgment of their sin. Do you understand? Of Revelation. It's all for his purpose. God can choose both Jews and Gentiles to show the richness of his mercy. So God can choose. Aren't you glad for this? Aren't you glad that he chose Gentiles to show the richness of his mercy? All right, let's stop for a moment. He chose you to show the richness of his mercy. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's pretty awesome because I'm assuming most of us here have, are not Jews at all. Do you understand? So... Now we come to where he's going to support it by Scripture. So look with me at verse 25 through 29. And look at what he says here. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There they shall be called the sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be like the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of the Sabaoth had left us a seed, we would become like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. Okay, so here's a couple points here. First of all, the book of Hosea proclaims that God will make his people those who are not. So Hosea's point is, is he's making the point here that God is going to make a people from those people who are not. Okay, anybody know who that is? Gentiles. Because we're not God's people. Do you understand? Who's God's people? Israel, the Jews. He's saying in the book of Hosea, God is saying that he will make himself a people who are not his people. He will consider beloved those who are not beloved. Isn't that interesting? He'll consider you beloved even though you weren't beloved before. So this is what the book of Hosea is saying. So then he goes on, though Israel will be many, he will preserve a remnant among them. Now remember, earlier in the passage, he said this, not all Israel is Israel. 
Simply because they're genetically, ethnically Jewish does not mean they're Israel. He's saying from Israel he's always kept a what? A believing remnant. Okay? A believing remnant. And so, though Israel be many, he will preserve a remnant among them. That's what the book of Isaiah says.